In a perfect world, truth and justice always prevails. But we're far from perfect, and so our justice system does falter. Sometimes so much it can send an innocent person to prison for a very long time. These are five unbelievable, true crime wrongful conviction cases. Number five, Philip Bivens. In May of 1979, Ava Patterson was at home in Forest County, Mississippi when a man broke in. Her husband was away working on an oil rig and her four-year-old son was sleeping inside the next room. Ava was violently raped and had her throat cut before stumbling through to her neighbor's garage trying to get help. It was there she collapsed and died. Her son Luke told police that a bad boy killed his mother. Shortly after, cops picked up 19-year-old Larry Ruffin, and several weeks after his arrest, he admitted that he was the one that raped and killed Miss Patterson. He then recanted his confession, saying police coerced him into it. Before the trial, police interviewed Bobby Ray Dixon, who had lived with Ruffin at the halfway house he was staying in at the time of the murder. Dixon said Ruffin had killed Patterson, and then he told them he was with them that night. At the same time, he also mentioned that a man named Philip Bivens was with them as well. Philip had just returned from California a few months earlier when he was arrested and told he could face the death penalty unless he confessed to his participation. Under pressure, he eventually admitted to the crime, even though he barely knew the other men involved. By 1980, the trial was underway, and most of it was based on the statements of the accused. All three men, despite initially pleading guilty, recanted their confessions and their stories never matched up because they were falsified. Both Dixon and Bivens pleaded guilty for fear of the death penalty. Larry Ruffin had a separate trial which resulted in a hung jury and he received a life sentence. In 2002, he died of a heart attack. Dixon, since he was illiterate, requested a guard to contact the Innocence Project for New Orleans on his behalf to help him prove his innocence. The lawyers discovered the frequency of false confessions among those in that prison and decided to request a DNA test from the rape kit evidence obtained from the crime scene. The results were run against the FBI database and it got a match to another man who was already serving a life sentence for rape and murder in the same county and that happened two years after the three men were arrested. Lawyer Rob McDuff, who was representing the families of Ruffin, Dixon, and Bivens, filed a motion for the charges to be dropped, and all three men were exonerated at once. Dixon was released on medical parole in 2010 because of lung cancer that had spread to his brain. While he tasted freedom for a moment, he died two months before a grand jury would declare complete exoneration for the men. By September 2010, Philip Bivens was the only one still incarcerated. On the day of the hearing, a Forest County judge threw out the convictions. So after 30 years behind bars, Philip would finally walk out a free man. Together with his family, he jokingly told reporters that it's a good idea to keep people around you because they keep you from thinking about things too much and they serve as an alibi just in case. Number 4. Sally Clark 
In England, on the night of December 13, 1996, Stephen Clark attended a Christmas party while his wife Sally stayed at home with their infant son, Christopher. She fed him and put him to bed before heading downstairs to make a cup of tea. When she checked back on the baby, Christopher had turned a pale gray color. She called the paramedics in hysterics, and Christopher was officially pronounced dead at 10.40 p.m. Sally suffered severe depression after the death and started drinking at work. She eventually sought help, and by the time she got pregnant and gave birth to her second son, Harry, in November of 1997, she had stopped drinking completely. On January 28, 1998, Sally was in bed with their son, and Stephen was downstairs preparing a bottle. At some point, she noticed the child's head was slumped forward, and he had stopped moving. She began screaming, and Stephen rushed over, attempting to resuscitate the baby, but it was too late. Like his brother, Harry was pronounced dead at 10.40 p.m. The couple, heavily distraught, asked for a pediatric specialist to do the post-mortem in order to know for sure what was happening. Dr. Williams then reported to the police that he suspected seeing bleeding that could indicate that Harry was shaken to death. In February of 98, police arrested Sally for the murder of her son. By April, she was also accused of killing her firstborn, Christopher, and had also given birth to their third son. She sought multiple assurances from different doctors. There was nothing genetic that could lead to the third child dying the same way. Legally, she was being advised to plead guilty to avoid a prison sentence, but admittedly said no, stating she could not start telling lies. Doctors testified against her, saying her reaction to the deaths were superficial and atypical, while Professor Sir Roy Meadow, an expert in sudden infant death syndrome, convinced the jury that the chances of two babies dying in one family is one in 73 million. This statement was later proven wrong and misleading, but it had already been made, and as a result, the jury convicted Sally of murder and sentenced her to life in prison. She appealed her case, catching a break by realizing Dr. Williams did not disclose that her second son suffered a bacterial infection in his respiratory system, even when he was questioned on the stand regarding the test results. It was also by this time the Royal Statistical Society stepped in and issued a statement that the figures represented by Professor Meadows had no statistical basis. As a result of this, the court overturned the conviction against Sally and she was freed in 2003. By that time, she had already served three years inside prison. The overturning of the case resulted in the reviewing of two other women's cases, Angela Cannings and Donna Anthony, who were accused of similar crimes that had their convictions overturned as well. Despite being freed, Sally would never be the same again. Four years after her release, she was found dead inside her home from acute alcohol intoxication. Her family said she suffered psychiatric and personality problems after her imprisonment, and despite trying, was never able to recover. Number 3. Nick Yaris It was December 15, 1981. A young woman named Linda Craig was working at the Tri-State Mall when she was abducted. After she was reported missing, her car was found abandoned on a roadway in Chichester, Pennsylvania. 
The next day, they discovered her body in a church parking lot, a half a mile from where her car was found. She had been stabbed multiple times, beaten, and sexually assaulted. Four days after the grim discovery, Nick Yaris and a friend were stopped along the highway because they were driving a stolen car. The confrontation turned violent, and Yaris was booked for attempted murder of an officer. He was later acquitted on this, but still convicted for stealing a car. At that time, he was a drug addict, and in hopes of getting out of prison early, made up a story about knowing who had killed Linda Craig. Police followed up on his supposed lead, but it got them nowhere and soon they began to suspect Yaris himself. The biological evidence from the crime scene was tested, but it only pointed that Yaris couldn't be completely ruled out. Then co-workers of the victim identified that Yaris was the one harassing her before her disappearance. Even more, jailhouse informants claimed Yaris admitted to the crime. As a result, Nick was found guilty of rape, abduction, and murder, and sentenced to death. He continued to proclaim his innocence, and by 1989, he was one of the first to demand post-conviction DNA testing. The biological evidence was tested against Yaris's, but the results proved inconclusive. So it wasn't until 2003 when Dr. Edward Blake pushed for the final round of testing on the fingernail scrapings found on the gloves obtained at the scene and the sperm present. They all belonged to the same person, and Yaris was excluded as the contributor. On September 3, 2003, his conviction was vacated, and he was exonerated of all charges. Nick Yaris was facing death row, but was released from prison after serving 21 years for a crime he never committed. Number 2. James Bain In Florida, close to Bain's home, a boy was sleeping inside his bedroom with his sister when an intruder broke in and dragged him towards a baseball field to rape him. The boy stumbled out of the woods naked and told his uncle what had happened, saying the man that raped him was about 17 or 18 years old, had sideburns and a mustache. When the victim's uncle, an assistant principal at Baines High School, heard the description, he said he knew someone matching it, James Bain. In 1974, James was 19 years old. One night he came home from a party just a block away and sat down on the couch with his sister to watch TV around 10.30. Afterwards, he fell asleep and was awakened when police knocked on their door around midnight, asking him to come down to the station for some questions. He complied, thinking he was just going to clear things up, and didn't even bother informing his sister or parents so they wouldn't worry. But after two days, he was still detained and didn't even know what they were accusing him of. It was then the officers told him he was booked as a suspect for the kidnapping and rape of a nine-year-old boy. He was placed in a lineup, and out of the six people presented to the victim, only Bain and another man had a mustache and sideburns. The victim picked Bain. He was immediately arrested, even though he had 12 other people willing to serve as his alibi. Not only that, he was with his sister at home when the crime was happening. The timeline for him to commit it just didn't fit, but the trial proceeded anyway and rested largely on the testimony of a traumatized nine-year-old boy. At the time, DNA testing wasn't available, and only blood serology was used. 
even though an expert concluded Bane belonged to the AB group and the semen obtained from the boy's underwear belonged to the B group, he was still convicted, and so James was sentenced to life in prison. Bane always maintained his innocence from the moment he was arrested. When DNA testing became common, it took multiple tries for him to be granted one. In fact, he tried five times before an appeals court finally approved him a hearing to see if his case could be given a chance to go through DNA testing. By 2009, the Innocence Project of Florida stepped in and helped argue his case throughout the hearing. After 35 years, he was finally granted a DNA test in October of 2009. Both sides received the verified results before Christmas, and James was finally released from prison on December 17th. After walking out of the courthouse, he used a cell phone for the first time in his life to call his mother. At 53 years old, he was finally a free man. Number 1. James Joseph Richardson In October of 1976, James Richardson and his wife, Annie May, were heading out for work. Annie prepared the children's meal and placed them in the fridge. The oldest child headed to school while the younger kids headed to Betsy Reese's house. Betsy was a neighbor who looked after the kids. By lunchtime, she had all seven of them in her house, divvied up the pre-made lunches and fed them. The eldest children went back to school, but after a few hours, they started convulsing and vomiting. They were then rushed to the hospital, and soon, all but one was dead. When the Richardsons were informed, they were only told one child was in the hospital. They initially didn't know that all other six had died. From the onset, Sheriff Frank Klein was suspicious of James. Along with other deputies, he searched the home and took various pots and pans to check for the presence of poison. They also checked the shed and didn't find anything that could have been used. However, the day after the death of his last child, a damp two-pound sack of insecticide was found in that shed. The officers and sheriff by this time had searched the home five times over and swore wasn't there before. When asked who found it, Betsy Reese said it was a man named Charlie Smith. James Richardson was arrested and charged with the murder of his seven children. At a press conference the following day, Sheriff Klein told reporters Richardson had other children who had also died under mysterious circumstances and that his motive was to collect insurance payouts. But this was a completely false statement. For his defense, Richardson picked John Robinson, who became concerned about the growing media rally against his client. Despite John's request for a change of venue for the trial because of the unfair climate, he was denied. Moreover, about 15 jurors, most of which were against the death penalty, were removed and instead replaced with an all-white jury, most of which were former KKK members. At the trial, Betsy Reese testified to giving the children the food, and it was Treadwell, the local assistant, the prosecutor, who did the examination of her. He acknowledged Betsy was on parole but never delved deeper into what crime she previously committed. The insurance salesman was also called to witness, but said while Richardson wanted insurance for his kids, he simply couldn't afford it. Still, Treadwell insisted a policy plan was in place, and Charlie Smith confirmed Betsy's story about discovering the pesticides. 
After a short deliberation, the jury found Richardson guilty and charged him with the death penalty. Richardson would stay incarcerated for 21 years before trial lawyer and author Mark Lane interviewed him on death row. He had been researching the case for some time and found several key facts that pointed towards Richardson's innocence and even published a book on it called Arcadia in 1970. In 1980, Robinson hired a private investigator who managed to track down Charlie Smith, the man that found the poison. He then recounted that during the time of the investigation, he saw Betsy standing outside her home, so he went up and asked what was happening. She then said the Richardson children had died from poisoning and took Charlie to the shed and pointed out the open bag of insecticide and said, that's it. Soon after, nursing home employee Brenda Frazier heard the rumors that Betsy had killed the children and asked Betsy herself, who was then confined to the home, if she did it. And she replied, yeah, I did, then began sobbing. See, Reese had a violent past, and as it turns out, her first husband died of poisoning after she prepared breakfast for him, and she was out on parole after being incarcerated for the shooting and killing of her second husband. It's also noted there was a possible motive for Reese as well. Her third husband left her after he accompanied Richardson on a trip to Florida, where her husband ended up falling for Richardson's cousin. On October 29, 1989, a hearing was set where Lane represented Robinson, and it was found that there was a cover-up between Sheriff Klein, State Attorney Frank Schwab, his deputy, Treadwell, and the local judge during the initial trial. By this time, Robinson had already served 21 years in prison, but was finally set free after proving his innocence. Even though he sued the court and sought damages, as of 2015, he still hasn't received anything for the injustices he received. So those were five unbelievable true crime wrongful conviction cases. Life is filled with unexpected moments. Most of the time it's a minor curveball, but other times it can be a life-altering instance that can take you from being free to behind bars in the blink of an eye. If you enjoyed this video, then let us know in the comments below. And remember to subscribe to our channel so each week we can bring you a new video to check out. Thanks for watching and we'll see you soon.